I haven't been this excited since that time Tim Cook showed me his iPad. I know, right? I'm about to pass out. This is a big day for us on Photocombobulate. Because we got Joe McFucking Nally here. It's time to get real with one of the best shooters in the business. Joe McNally's a legend, but he's not above hanging out with some hacks like us. He's here to talk about his new book, The Real Deal, which is packed with awesomeness. What are we waiting for? I'm Mason Marsh. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This is Photocombobulate. And I'm Joe McFucking Nally. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a bunch of questions. I know Jeff has some, so I'm going to jump in with my first question. In our last episode of this podcast, Jeff and I shared our favorite images from last year, and we both came to the conclusion that we're craving some portraiture in 2022. We've been isolated from other people, and we feel like this deep drive to get out and make some portraits. How's the pandemic left you? What kinds of images do you need to make these days? I'd say I'd be right there with you. Uh, You know, I'm a big part of my archive and assigning work has been in the realm of portrait photography. Sometimes it's an illustrative portrait, maybe an athletic portrait, various kinds of subcategories, but yeah, encountering a human being in front of the lens is what I always have, you know, gravitated towards. It's a source of strength, gets me excited to, uh, you know, take a look at another person, look at their life. I'm always curious. And the exchange is almost always a wonderful one. You know, it's, it's amazing that someone trusts you and gets in front of your camera, which is a very vulnerable place to be and, you know, works with you to create something that, that will hopefully stand the test of time. It just feels like we've had such a drought of human connection. And I think people need good portraiture now. More than ever. And I'm sure glad that we've got you looking forward to more of that. Absolutely. I loved your book. I've read several of your books. This one so far is my favorite, probably because of the fact that it's the story of you. And a major theme in your new book is, is work ethic, I think. And I've always appreciated your approach to projects and assignments as this kind of merging of creativity and the willingness to work to make it happen. In a world where Instagram reels reach more eyes than 12-page National Geographic stories, is there still a place for hard work? Sure. Uh, Photography is hard work. There's no two ways about it. It's, uh, you know, there is kind of this, it's almost a mirage that's been created through the digital prowess of the tools that we have, you know, the, the cameras come in these glistening boxes and they're automatic and they have millions and millions of pixels and promises are made and autofocus, auto this, auto that, all of which is wonderful. I'm so happy with the technology that we have, but what it can tend to um, obfuscate a little bit is the, the mission of the photographer, which is telling good stories is still a difficult one. The technology facilitates us to be sure, but it doesn't, quote unquote, make photography easy. Never has been, never will be. So one of the things that I really appreciate about the book is your candor. There's a chapter called The State of Things where you're talking about shooting a basketball team. And it was eye-opening because you break down the entire job, which was great. But you also mentioned like your editor honing in on one pose and saying – 
do you also have that where they're not you know m- making a wild face and you're like no no i i i didn't i sometimes feel like there's this pressure like everything you do has to be perfect like you have to go out and you have to sort of hit everything on its right mark but that doesn't really happen and so if you could just sort of talk about like the real life experiences of of having as you mentioned a lot in the book, the confidence to to go out and screw something up or a change in the middle of something in the field if something doesn't go the way you want. I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. I mean, you do go out with a set of expectations, especially when you're on assignment and money is changing hands. A magazine may direct you. You know, the art director may want what the art director wants, and that's totally fine, you know, because they are paying the tab and they have a right to expect certain things or a certain level, a certain standard. In the case that you're mentioning here, the ESPN job, the editor really didn't have much input on the actual visuals. They just needed a, a really cool photograph of these stellar basketball players at UConn. And uh, within the context of that, I was free to do whatever I wanted. Of course, when you start to ship in your your images, they might zero in on something that you didn't completely turn the corner on. Or maybe your instincts shorted out on you and you said, "Ah, you know, this is not really working all that well. Let me move on. And you move on in, in a summary fashion, maybe too soon. And sure enough, you show that image, the client says, oh, wow, do you have more of this? And it's like, oh. No, I don't. I don't. You know, that's why I've always been a big fan of editing really tight. You know, when I was shooting for uh, magazines like Life, they would see 10 slides. That's it. And that was a really well-established bond of trust because magazines at that point in time would assign a photographer because they thought the photographer's vision or capabilities were right for that job. And they would accept what you sent in. It wasn't like you shout a thousand frames. I want to see a thousand frames. No, it it started to come around like that, to be sure. But uh, Geographic, my first cover story for National Geographic, I shot 1,500 rolls of Kodachrome, 1,500 times 36. And the editor saw 80 chromes for a final take and about 35 ended up in the magazine. So... Yeah, there is a winnowing process to be sure you drive down towards your best images and you're not completely certain where they're going to come from. Sort of on that note, Joe, nowadays it's as sports photographers, especially are shooting directly to editors. You know, they're not getting that chance to call and select their their favorite shots from the from the game or from the the whole event. How do you feel about that? I mean, it seems like photographers now are just feeding you know thousands of images to editors and the editors get to make that creative choice. That is, and it's a two-edged sword. A lot of photographers, uh, myself included, occasionally anyway, are not great editors of their own work because we get emotionally wrapped up in what we're doing. And, you know, it's like, oh, we like everything, you know, perhaps. So editors, uh, good editor is worth their weight in gold because they can really hone in on what's important in a take. But I did come through newspapers and wire services where economy was really important. I learned that lesson at a ball game, a championship ball game in New York, shooting for UPI, where I was so nervous that I was covering third base and I bagged and shipped all my film that I was shooting. And it really jammed up this tiny little closet darkroom. And Larry DeSantis came to me afterwards and he almost sort of pushed me against 
the cinder block wall and he pointed a finger at me and he said, tonight, he said, you set the world's record for shipping me insignificant film, pop-ups, ground balls. What is this bullshit? You know? And, and I realized, you know, that was a powerful thing to realize. I had jammed the operation up by not being economical and only sending my best stuff. Now, as you say, at a sporting event, the, the pictures are piped right into the editor and they're seeing it and it's, it's out on the wire. It's, you know, it's around the globe before the race is over almost, you know, I mean, it's, it's crazy how fast it is. I uh, worked as an AP stringer for a few years. I was a newspaper photographer too. And um, I actually ended up in, in the equivalent of Kankakee. I'm the guy that went off to the little small market dailies and uh, languished there for several years. But one of the things that I really treasured about being a photojournalist was the chance to meet with a wide spectrum, meet and, and photograph a wide spectrum of yeah. people. I really sort of felt like it was the best job in the world because while everyone else was at work, I got to go out and see what everybody else was doing. And you've met and photographed world leaders, elite athletes, famous people, coal miners, and a whole bunch of average Joes. I want to know, I want to kind of tap into your wisdom, if you will. After meeting all these people for 40 plus years on the job, what's the secret to happiness? Oh, Lord. Well, I know my secret to happiness, and her name is Annie Cahill, uh, my wife. And, you know. Good answer. <laughs> um, but I think you can tell. I mean, I'm with you on that, Mason, you know, in terms of going out into the world, a beautiful thing. The truly beautiful thing about being a photographer is we are oftentimes set to go photograph someone or something that is excellent or fascinating or amazing. Uh, occasionally, you know, you're sent to photograph something that's truly awful, <laughs> you know, and those are, are uh, you know, those assignments will come your way. But oftentimes you're a witness to excellence. Someone is just so good at what they do. And most of the time I've found that the grace of being in presence of that is a, an astonishing and refreshing, you know, it's almost like taking a wonderful, you know, dive into a beautiful pool or something like that. Oh my God, you, you see what folks are capable of and you're witnessing that and your camera stands in service. Like I, I, I photograph dance. I've, I've always photographed dance. I love ballet. And when a dancer gives you a gift in front of the camera, perfection is achieved. They're in the air. You have to rise and meet that perfection at the lens. That's your obligation. You have to marry that excellence that's in front of the lens. So, so that is um, a wonderful source of happiness. I mean, it's a tremendous contentment to come away from the field, having met someone and photographed them in a unique way. And you know you got what you come for. You know you got a picture that other people are really going to begin to understand who and what those folks are. That's pretty cool. Do you find that those interactions changed how you shot subsequent people? Like how much is there a bleed over from those experiences and then building forward? Sure. I mean everything does lead to other things. I always tell young photographers you have to take the assignment that truly terrifies you. Because no matter what happens, that's a gateway assignment. You open that door, you go through it. On the other side of it, win, lose, or draw, you'll be a different and presumably better photographer. So, I, I, you know, my editor at Geographic came to me and he said, look, 
we were jamming on other stories. And he said, this uh, photographer came back and dropped this story. Doesn't want to do it. It's called the universe. <laughs> this is National <laughs> Geographic. We're doing a story on the universe. Um, uh, you've got 12 <laughs> weeks. Do you think that's enough? Um, you know, a typical. Uh, Can you shoot that actual yeah, size? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was on a story about observing the universe via the huge telescopes in the world. I had never, I had never shot oh, yeah. a telescope before in my life. I had no idea what I was walking into. And I grabbed the job immediately. I was like, give me the work. You know, the other guy doesn't want it. I'll take it. Uh, give me the work. And so it absolutely nerve wracked about what you're going to try to do, but you figure it out. You, you figure it out. That's a photography can, it's best to go into the field with a plan. I'm not saying not to, but photography is about oftentimes turning on a dime ad hoc solutions, uh, the surprise that occurs in the field, whether it's a good surprise or a bad surprise, you react at camera. Yeah. It was one of the things I loved about photojournalism was it was like catching a tiger by the tail. You know, you're really just going to do your best with what you're given and appreciate that story about you t grabbing that assignment. And it led you to Hawaii, right? Where you photographed the telescopes in Hawaii and all of that. Yeah. I can't imagine being a National Geographic contributor and and having having any kind of idea that I would drop that assignment. So I want to kind of chase that a little bit. What assignments have you dropped? What have you turned away from and said, nope, I can't do it? There's been a few I should have. <laughs> and I ended up doing <laughs> poorly on. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't really turned away jobs so much uh, because like, I just didn't want to do them or something. There were jobs I wasn't comfortable with ultimately. And uh, Life Magazine had me assigned and I spent a lot of time with Jack Kevorkian, Dr. Death. And over time, I grew uncomfortable with that. It ended up not working out. It was not published. And I'm thankful for that. I've since occasionally published a couple of portraits of him just to discuss the whole idea, which incidentally, I'm, I'm a huge supporter of the right of someone to you know, uh, end their life in the way that they see fit at a certain point in time. But yeah, there's been things, you know, sometimes people rise up and they just push back. And I've walked away from jobs at a high powered television executive refused to uh, pose in the very restaurant that she designated as the locale. She said, well, no, I'm not going to pose here. And there were, there were nudes on the wall, these little nymphs, these woodland fairies. And she said, Oh no, you can't, I, I, I won't pose in front of that. I said, well, this is your choice of restaurant. This is your favorite restaurant. She goes, I'll photograph in the bar. And the bar was just a Brown wall. I said, I'm not going to photograph in the bar. And so that leaves us at an interesting position. And I walked away from the job. I, I just left. I didn't shoot. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, what beyond the pixels, beyond the f-stops and all of that, this is most of the time an exercise in human relationships. And I think it's incumbent on photographers, no matter if they're thrown into something that's disadvantageous or whatever it might be, to find a way. Your editor expects you to find a way. Once you say yes to the job, it's your baby. You have to work it out. So one thing following on that is your work has been very diverse, really varied. Are there things that 
you have shot that you had no idea that you would you would be doing? Like, for example, did you ever think that you would shoot the Olympics, or has it been just so open? Like, I'm just going to shoot all sorts of things because I'm I'm curious, and that's where the jobs are. Yeah, I, there are a lot of photographers out there I respect tremendously who their entire career they've hewed to a certain theme or course or cause or people or geographic area preservation of wildlife, ecology, et cetera. Um, I have never done that. I've been a a kitchen sink photographer. I refer to myself um, as oftentimes a general assignment magazine photographer, whereas if you need, you know, politics, uh, science, technology, celebrity, sports, feature, Hollywood, whatever it might be. uh, I am curious about it. You know, I know a good assignment when I get one, you know, sometimes you think, okay, yeah, I'll go do this. And there's not really a a piece of your soul that is uh, associated with that job. You're doing it to make a living. And I talk about that in in the book as well. There's absolutely, there's absolute honor in that. You know, you maybe don't think about the job ever again, but on that day you went out, you did your job ably and well, you got paid for it. Nothing wrong with that. You know, Uh, that's a good day in the field. But then every once in a while you get those assignments that that reverberate, you know, and, uh, you know, I can be, can I be mildly scatological on this program? Uh, Absolutely. Um, sure. Yeah, you know, I had an old photographer at the New York Daily News pull me aside once and he looked at me and he goes, kid, you know, when you're getting good stuff, because you can feel your asshole going like this. <laughs> at that point, I had no idea that my optical nerve was connected to my rectum. But, you know, there you go. For some folks, that's where uh, the, the tremors occur. That's OK. But, you know, in your gut, you know, in your gut, when you've got a good job and you go after it. And those jobs that occur where you, you're tuned up about or you feel like you're you're synchronous with, you know, those are really special moments. It seems to me that, you know, reading your stories in the book and following you for years, you make those moments a lot of times. You almost make it sound like it's they're just serendipity. But the truth is, I think a great example in one of my favorite parts of this book is your desire to shoot in low light to highlight this new Nikon lens, this 0.95 f-stop lens. And you wanted to shoot in a coal mine. Your idea was coal mine and you couldn't get gain access to one domestically. And so you ended up going to Romania and making what I think are the strongest photographs in the book are these intimate portraits of these coal miners in Transylvania, right? I'm struck by the eyes of those coal miners and I'm really drawn to those photos. I can spend hours just sitting and looking at those guys, thinking about their lives are like, thinking about what it's like to be down in the ground in the dark. And, and I feel like that was a great example of you taking an idea but then pushing and pushing and pushing until it was magical, like you said, until you felt that. <laughs> I'm sure you felt that tingle because those those photographs really connect. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I've always uh, celebrated labor work. I think, again, the, uh, the idea of the camera standing in service to someone There's there's real honor and dignity in work, whether you're you know, a farmer or a stockbroker or a plumber or a firefighter, whatever, you know, I'm I'm curious about what people do. How do they make their way through their day? And certainly coal mining. It's a very topic that's in the news. I had no connection to that. I was interested in these men. They were all men who went down into the mine and what they do to make a living, what the human uh, spirit will go through to bring home 
sustenance for their family or, you know, these men risk a lot every day in the most raw conditions you could imagine. I mean, this mine, uh, I mean, it was not safe to me. It was not safe. And uh, they go in there every single day. And so, as I say, and I write about, you know, we're you know, a couple of kilometers under the earth. I mean, there's no coming back uh, from this if anything goes wrong down there. And we were laughing. You know, I mean, I'm sure the jokes were at my expense in Romanian, um, but uh, that's okay. You know, that's all right. Uh, I'm the interloper. I have the, I'm a tourist. I'm only down there for a day. These men go down there every single day. So it's, I think it's part and parcel of my job to honor them, to honor what they do and the sacrifice they make. So I want to follow on that. I know the story of the Kentucky coal miners that you went and photographed, that you were able to share the portraits that you made with them. I know that if you go and you photograph a model and you show them the image on the back of the camera, you get them a print later. They're like, oh, thanks. But when you photograph a coal miner or you know an average Joe, so to speak, and you share your work with them, what happens there for you when you get them that work and they get a chance to see what you did for them with your camera? As you said, that camera's paying respect to them. Yeah, that's a wonderful moment because... Um, you know, when you share that work or show them the LCD or send them a print, a lot of times folks who are, as, as you refer, you know, average Joe's average, average folks don't really view themselves as beautiful. You know, and that's, uh, you know, I mean, Beyonce, you know, gets told she's beautiful a hundred times a day, you know, most people don't. <laughs> so, those uh, miners I photographed in Kentucky when I sent all of those prints back and there was a lot of prints, you know, I had them made and they were very nice, nicely done. Those miners were stunned. And the gentleman who was my contact there called me back up and said, you've got a welcome there anytime. That's powerful. That's powerful. That again is human relations. Those folks were had dignity, pride, beauty, you know, honor, grace in front of the camera. And they had never imagined that, I think, could happen. There's a section in the book where you are revisiting some people that you've shot early on. And again, that human connection, because I think so many people think of photography as, all right, I'm going to go and I'm going to shoot this one thing and I will probably never see mm-hmm. them again. And yet you have people that you, you've shot multiple times over the years. You have a, a, a really loyal and wonderful crew that you've worked with. And I, I have to say just I love the fact that you always make a point of showcasing the people that you are working with. In the things that you write about or that you uh, – you know, interviews that I've heard, you're always talking about Lynn and you're talking about the assistants and just you know, building everybody up. It's, it's a team effort for sure. It's a team effort. Lynn does so much pre-production work. It's like, you know, she hands me the baby, you know. <laughs> you know it's like, okay, I got it. Here's the baby. You take care of it now, you know. It's a different kind of pressure. She'll work for five, six weeks on something to get it just right. Then she turns it over to me. And sometimes it's a one day shoot or two day shoot or something like that. So it's a very different form of pressure. Um, and it is very much a team. I listen on location. I listen to assistants. I listen to the talent. Uh, and sometimes there's ideas there that uh, uh, are well worth incorporating. Uh, 
or you can draw the tenor of the job, you know, from, uh, you know, the overall atmosphere of the crew and make sure that you stay on top of that and you lead it. You, you remain positive. When I, when I did the Z9 marketing campaign recently, our first day in the field did not go very well at all. In fact, it just went horribly. It didn't get a photograph. Weather was against us. A whole bunch of stuff happened. And uh, I just was like, okay, we've got tomorrow. You know, I mean, you you pick up and you go. And if you, as the leader of the band, so to speak, get down or get morose or get angry or resentful or start shouting or yelling, that that's a bad thing. And it takes everybody down. It really does. Because people need to put up with that. You know, there was a legendary story years ago. Uh, a Sports Illustrated shooter was kind of a screamer, very large man. And uh, he was shooting Sports Illustrated swimsuit. Very well-known photograph, actually. They seated the water under a surfboard. And uh, the model is luxuriating on the surfboard. And underneath the board are all the tropical fish. And it's an over and under but he was quite large and he couldn't be stabilized. So they lashed him to a dock pilot literally. And then when the shoot was over, he handed the camera up and uh, his assistants just said, see ya. (laughs) And walked, walked down the block and uh, they stood at the end of the pier and had themselves, I don't know, margaritas or something and watched the tide come in. Um, And uh, he, he didn't yell so much after that. (laughs) wow that's a classic untold story as legend has it i was not there i was not there so both jeff and i've attended workshops of yours and i teach photography now that's mostly what i do other than this podcast and i really enjoy working with folks who are learning photography and kind of catching the bug if you will one of the things i really take away from your workshops and i'm not a I'm not a photographer that goes out and does a lot of portraiture. I, I tend towards, well, I might be a generalist. I tend towards landscapes and things like that because they're they're easy. Um, landscapes don't ask to look at the screen, and <laughs> they don't they don't bug me about how long I'm taking to set up everything and all of that. So, when you're talking to someone who's new to photography and they're inclined to take the easy route, how do you encourage people to? lean in and try portraiture, try things that stretch their comfort zone. Um, what would you say to someone who's like, I'll just stick with my uh, macro water droplet photography for now because <laughs> people scare me. <laughs> I've had many, many people in workshops like that who are you know, resolute landscape photographers, as you say, or maybe they live in a different world and you know, they do close-up work or they, they have a serious difficulty and it's very understandable engaging street photography or portraits or uh, and that's oftentimes why they come to a workshop because I don't have landscapes on you know I don't advertise them you know as I, I don't run landscape workshops it's a portrait workshop uh, we oftentimes call the workshops that we do a face in a place because that's what I did oftentimes for National Geographic you know a, a face in a place helps tell you the story you know the the, the shoemaker in his shop uh, what it, whoever it might be, you know, uh, so that helps round out the context in which you are photographing someone. It gives the viewer information that you want. I always hark back to, to 
to get a picture published in the National Geographic has to, had to fire on three separate pistons. It had to be pictorially successful. It had to be informationally successful. And it also had to emotionally involve the reader. Those three levels, you know, I mean, you can have eye candy all you want. You know, you know, you bring a pretty sunset or something into the geographic and most of the editors will be like, you know, what are you thinking? We've seen this, you know, type of thing. Mm-hmm. So storytelling pictures are, uh, are powerful things to do and they are frightening a little bit because you get emotionally involved with someone. And that is sometimes a hard thing to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, people have to be patient with it. They have to one just a couple of successes can be the wind in your sails for a long time. You guys know, right? You're out there with cameras. You can go for months, you know, feeling like for months you haven't made a good photograph. And then all of a sudden something happens and you turn a corner and there's beautiful light and there's kids, I don't know, playing with a ball or something like that. And you make some wonderful pictures that just lift you up again. And that's the wind in your sails for a long time. So yeah, to that end, I tell people you've got to hang in there. You've got to step forward. Oftentimes I'll, I'll go with them. I'll see if I can break through uh, the initial defenses if I can, you know, and then sometimes what happens is, uh, forgive me if I'm going on here, I don't mean to, but, but someone will come in with a photograph where they obviously, the subject is working with them and the photograph still doesn't work because they shot three frames and moved on because they're so nervous. Well, I, I felt that was taking the person's time. I said, you already did the hard part well. The hard part is gaining access. The hard part is getting inside someone's fence. The easy part is the pixels and the lens and all that. That's the mechanical aspects of it. And then once you're inside the door, don't rush back out again. Stay with it. Don't shoot three frames. Shoot 30, 40, 50, 100. Keep a rapport going. Don't overstay. Don't be you know, a jerk about it. But the hard part is making the connection. Well, that said, I I think that one of the things I tell my clients in classes is um, photograph people you love, people that you Mm -hmm. know. And there's a great quote, and I don't know who said it. It might have been you. um, (laughs) It said that all the pretty photos in the world don't amount to a hill of beans. People love photos of people they love. I don't know who said that, but that's pretty accurate. Yeah. It seems to me that whenever I photograph one of my family members, maybe one of my kids or my wife, I'm I'm really self-conscious. I'm very much, you know, if it's an iPhone snap, that's easy. But if it's getting out the real camera, setting up a light, maybe setting them in front of a backdrop, then it feels like you're imposing. And I think you, you mentioned this a little bit, you know, pushing through this, but I do feel like a gift that we can give as photographers to people that we love is to capture them honestly. And I don't feel inclined to do that enough. I, I've, I've got a real hang up about that. And I think a lot of photographers do because it's scary. Yeah, it, it is. But, you know, again, it's, you know, that old song, you know, don't you know what you've got until it's gone? You know, um, yeah. you know, those moments that we lose that we're like too lazy, too reticent, too nervous, too this, too that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll shoot it again. Tom- I'll shoot it tomorrow. Yeah. No, you're not going to shoot it tomorrow. The light will not be there. The moment will not be there. Photography is a very immediate thing to do, and you have to rise up and grab it as as it happens. I mean, that's a cliche, but 
we are in the business of trying to stop time. And if we sit back, time just slides right past us. I mean, we just lost Annie's mom in, in the fall and after a long illness. And I really, really loved mom. She was a great mom to me. And she was never a huge fan of me when I pulled out the camera and I would photograph Annie and mom in the kitchen getting Christmas dinner ready or something like that. She was not, you know, but boy, are Annie and I glad we have those photographs. So, um, yeah, it can be like, I know you maybe don't want to do this, but I got to do it. You've got to do it. You know, the, you know, uh, the, you have, if you're a photographer, you have to photograph, um, the famous Balanchine quote, I oftentimes refer to, uh, when he was ref- describing ballet dancers, he said, I don't want people who want to dance. I want people who need to dance and that you need to photograph. It's like breathing. You just need to confront the world with a camera. It's, it's important. I mean, if, if you are a photographer, I mean, obviously if you do other things mm-hmm. instinctually too, those folks, wherever they are, they need to do what they do because what they do makes up a big chunk of who they are. Following on that a little bit, um, I, I'm curious, like, do you undertake personal photo projects or because you run a studio, you run a business, your personal ideas end up being something where you have to figure out, okay, how can we make this happen or, you know, get a client to fulfill this image? Because I know a, a lot of your jobs have, have really just come from there. I've never really had a dividing line in my head uh, between personal work and professional work. Luckily, it's it's just been like sloshed back and forth. The best jobs I've been assigned to, if I develop a real good relationship with that job, it becomes personal, you know? And uh, sure, I have personal pictures, you know, of my my family and whatnot, but in terms of, you know, being there, and there are photographers out there who really make very distinct separation between the work they do for money on assignment and the work they do for themselves. Or they use mm-hmm. those money-driven assignments to fund a personal project. There is that. And I, I truly deeply admire that. It's pretty amazing. Uh, for me, it's been, again, a bit of a grab bag. You know, I, uh, you know, I've done jobs that have become just part of me. And that to me is obviously very personal. It's obvious from your work, both your writing and your photography that you're your gifted storyteller. And a lot of what you talk about in the new book is, you know, is these great assignments you've done, projects you've done. What, what story are you itching to tell that you haven't told yet? Hmm. There's a number of them. Uh, you know, I grew up on fantasy, you know, books and comic books and epics and Jack London and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I, I do have, maybe you could call it an adventurous imagination uh, you know, and, mm-hmm. or maybe I've always wanted to run away with the circus or something. And I've always loved people on stage. I've loved performers, be they singers or dancers or musicians or actors, actresses. I, I just, I've always uh, loved uh, the notion of folks who are so powerful and so magnetic that they're willing to step on stage and demand that people pay money to come see them. And like, wow, you know. So I've always wanted to do a book about the circus and start with uh, oh, wow. the old style circuses of 
you know, China, India, Eastern Europe, and just kind of keep working my way through over to the more modern expression of the circus in, you know, Cirque du Soleil and high powered kind of stage shows and this and that. I've always wanted to do something that could be a progression like that. Uh, you know, who knows? I, I used to suggest it every year as a story idea for National Geographic and they would routinely um, turn it down. <laughs> Keep pitching, yeah. keep pitching. Yeah. So, but there's things, there's still things that I want to do. And sometimes it just evolves, you know, into a single image, like, wow, that would be really, really cool to do like something. And then I, I do try to build a consortium around that, you know, of perhaps financing or, you know, write proposals to see if I get somebody interested. Watching you from afar. It seems like you get a combination of editorial assignments. Um, you do things like going off to the Olympics, which I'm, I'm not sure economically how that fits your business. If you're there on assignment for one particular client or if you're sort of broadcasting to several different clients. But projects like Nikon, you know, you had this long running relationship with Nikon and they come out with a new camera. And it's just assumed, I'm guessing, that Joe's going to go take this camera out and make some amazing photos with it. And we're going to put these in ads. So economic, as you progress into the future in stock photographies, you, you illustrate this really well in the book. Stock photography is really not there. Editorial assignments, I'm guessing, are harder and harder to come by. So are these projects where you're working specifically with a company like Nikon, is this becoming more and more your bread and butter? Sure, absolutely. Um, the smaller scale editorial assignments have by and large gone away. Uh, you know, especially given my age, you know, and, and, you know, the longevity I have in the business, you know, I'm not really in the assigning mix anymore. Magazines, you know, God, you know, I've shot for tons of magazines that are gone, you know. So it is a different world. As I say, I write proposals. I try to get people intrigued, commercial entities, even though I try to shoot in an editorial fashion for those commercial entities. Uh, at the Olympics, I was shooting with Zuma Press. It's a wonderful kind of boutique agency that services, you know, clients all over the world. Uh, the, the Nikon relationship has always been super positive. It's never a given. I'll, I'll quote unquote, get a job surrounding a launch or a new camera. Lots of talented photographers they have access to, you know. So, you know, I'm blessed to have shot uh, a number of things for them that have been well-received. So the Z9, I was very proud of the work that we did and also really fortunate just to get my hands on this amazing machine, which was pretty remarkable. And um, yeah, I, I used to use the terms, you know, we, you know, editorial photographers, we used to fish for fish and now we fish for whales. You know, you, you only get, you know, you get a, a few big jobs a year instead of lots of smaller jobs. And then also we supplement, you know, I always counsel photographers to try to establish a mess, uh, you know, some means of passive income, you know, books, royalties, fine art prints, write a blog. We have a, a pretty far reaching blog. It's, it's, you know, still has very good numbers in terms of readership. So we have uh, supporters of that, you know, so that kind of, um, overall mosaic, you know, of something from here and there, et cetera, interspersed with a job, interspersed with a workshop, interspersed with a lecture uh, date or something like that keeps the ball bouncing. Yeah. You're not bored, yeah. right? No. You're getting bored. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm definitely not bored. I, I, uh, 
I tried to, the pandemic, you know, uh, was horrible, you know, and still is for mm -hmm. everyone, but it did create that little bit of a window where I could stay at home and actually write this book. If, if I was still out there tilting away at the pace that I was accustomed to, I probably wouldn't have gotten the book done. Yeah. You know, when the pandemic hit, I came home, I was March 15th, 2020, seven, wow. 75 days into 2020. And at that point, I had traveled 68 of them. And I was scheduled to go back to Japan and then go back for a third time for the games. And all that went away. Mm -hmm. And wow. I was just home. And I wasn't on an airplane again until I went to Tokyo the following year. So that was a mm -hmm. big change. And so I'm thankful that uh, I did have the time and also how I was smart enough to use it. Like, okay, time to do this. Because I had signed a contract to do this book with Rocky Nook the ever patient folks at Rocky Nook. They're wonderful. Um, <laughs> I had signed a contract to write a book for them uh, five years ago. <laughs> I just kept not getting to it. I have to say, just based on our experiences too, it was really gratifying to read in the book that, that you started as a writer because actually that's kind of where, where Mason and I are. I mean, I've been a writer for a long time who then got into photography. And so I think just by nature – because you started as a writer, I think of you as a writer who also does a whole lot of photography. But I love the fact that in the book you're talking about not just the the, the act of doing it but the necessity of if you're going to be a photographer, you need to know how to write. You need to know how to do proposals and all of this because it's so easy for for us to get caught up in the, OK, I know how to use my camera. So I'm good to go, Right. Yeah, it's it's an important component, being able to explain yourself, to write logically and powerfully, uh, to let people know, like, yeah, this is how I'm going to spend your money. The National Geographic, a lot of the stories that I did for them, especially in the early going, all had budgets north of a quarter million dollars. And when you came back in, you know, the editor would look at you and say, <laughs> what have you done with my money? Let me see, you know, um, and uh, yeah, there's a quid pro quo there, you know, so to to gather funding uh, in an increasingly difficult environment, I think photographers have to be very proactive in the way they can seek work, explain themselves, you know, establish clients, uh, you know, be innovative about the way they present themselves, their websites, their work, et cetera. It's a much more complicated picture, I think than was heretofore. Definitely. You know, one thing that I noticed in your workshops that I've taken, and it certainly comes through in this new book, is that you project a real genuine humility that is refreshing. <laughs> we seem to have a lot of disingenuousness these days. And having someone just be upfront and say, listen, this isn't, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. I, I tried this. It didn't work. I'm not always brilliant. Not every shot is epic. And one of the things I like in your book is you talk about people who talk about their photos being uh, epic and how you you say very clearly, don't ever say your photo's epic. If it's epic, it'll be epic. <laughs> I want to kind of drill down and get some of your wisdom on self-promotion and this idea that if you kind of fake it till you make it and be overconfident that that will somehow help you in this field, it seems to me that you go the opposite direction. You're like, hey, uh, here's what I would do to spend your money, but I'm not perfect. So <laughs> how does that work for you? Yeah, I mean, 
humility goes with the package, you know, because we do fail a lot as photographers. We are fraught with frailties and we also operate at the whim of the world. What's the light going to be like this afternoon when my job, it's very uncertain and, and can be very anxiety producing to be sure. So yeah, I think it's best to keep your feet on the ground. Don't, don't believe your own press notices and uh, don't, don't get wrapped up in the whole ego of photography. Enjoy it. I mean, you have to have an ego because you have to step forward and uh, control your fate, get a job, run the show, all that sort of stuff. But don't, you know, any photographer who tells you that every time they pick up a camera, the angels are singing, is just freaking lying to you, you know, just are, you know, because things don't always work out. And hopefully, you know, the best part about a photographic career being in it for the long haul is you get bumped and bruised, but you pick yourself up off the canvas and you go back out because you just love doing this so much. My favorite part of the book is the stories of you as a young newspaper man. I was in newspapers. I, I know the thrill of hearing that press spin up and hours spent splashing fixer on yourself. And I really miss those days. You know, those are the, as I get older, I look back and with much fondness on those days. And I think that one of the takeaways from that in reading your book is that you did not, no one invited you into the newspaper and said, your, your work is amazing. We saw your work on who knows where, and we just think you're incredible. And we see you as an untapped talent. We're going to bring you in and nurture you and, and give you every opportunity to grow. You, you basically kicked the door open and then just kept scratching your way up. I think that that's where that humility comes from, is you, you weren't given a key. You had to kind of figure out how to sneak in through the window, right? Well, an extensive critique at the New York Daily News, if, you're, if your negatives were projected on the screen at deadline and there are people milling about, a classic thing would be like, whose shit is this? You know, um, <laughs> so... Yeah. You know, you grow up, you know, in an environment like that, you develop a fairly thick skin and you realize not everybody is going to like your pictures. You know, you're not going to be the bell of the ball for every photo editor out there for sure. Some people are going to really work with you and like what you do. Other people will avoid you like the plague. It's never going to be universal. I'm a West Coast guy. I grew up, and Jeff and I both are kind of West Coasters. I went and worked in small market newspapers, always been small market kind of person. I, Hearing you talk and, and reading your stories about your early days, I get a sense that there's a, a certain tenacity that New Yorkers especially and East Coasters have that, I, I'll be honest, I think we're a little soft out here in the West. I had a, an editor at AP just just scream me out one night on the phone because I was blowing a deadline. And he said, he yelled at me, he said, every newspaper in the United States is waiting for your fucking photo. And I, I never built, it didn't build my confidence. It actually reduced it quite a bit. And I was pretty gun shy from that point on. Do you think there's a tenacity that you had from being a, a kid who moved around a lot as a kid who had to make friends a lot over and over? And then you had to kind of fight your way up in the business in New York. Did that give you a tenacity that, that a lot of people don't have? I don't know about other folks, but yes, tenacity is a huge component of being a photographer because it will not always go well. You will hear no, you will receive criticism. It's just part of what we do and who we are. So yeah, there's an element of chip on the shoulder thing maybe going on where, you know, okay, all right. So you're going to fire me. You're going to not like my pictures. Well, I'll show you. You know, and 
there's also kind of a lack of ego about it at geographic. I, you know, I, I never cared, you know, if I was the first photographer asked or the 10th photographer asked, you know, my attitude was always, well, if I'm the 10th photographer you asked, I'll go out there and I'll show you why you should have asked me first. Mm. And so there's a competitive edge to that. I mean, uh, and you have to compete. You have to compete for work. That's why there's a story in, in the book about the Queensboro Bridge. I, I climbed the Queensboro Bridge specifically in response to the fact that there was another photographer out there who was doing a lot of like building work in New York. And I was like, uh, no, I'm going to I'm going to mix it up here. And uh, yeah, so I ended up, I, you know, climbed the bridge. I ended up climbing the World Trade Center antenna, the Empire State Building, you know, because uh, when I, the first climb up the Empire State Building, um, I was just so wired to do it. But they had made it clear, Guinness Book of World Records, the television show had priority. And there's a there's a, an ice shield up there uh, ringing the antenna. You're, it's quite precarious. You have to climb to the ice shield and then you put on your, your, your harness and you're clipped in the wind there. And it's not a lot of real estate, maybe you know, three feet out from the antenna mm-hmm. and there's rungs rebar that you start to climb. And the, I looked at the Guinness guy, you know, and uh, he put one foot on that and he put it back down and I was not sympathetic. You know, he was not going to make the climb. <laughs> and I just, I, I, I won't say the expletive I, I, I said, uh, but I, I just, <laughs> I was just like, get out of my way. And I was, I was going to climb that sucker you know, and there was just no way. And of course I failed, you know, I got like three feet uh, from the light and they turned it off. So it, I didn't get the picture that ran in the geographic until f- uh, my fourth climb. Climbed that sucker four times. Mm. And um, yeah, you, you got to learn from your mistakes, hang in there. You got to be like a cork, no matter what the condition and whether it's calm or, or, or rough, you float. No matter how many times you get pushed down, you pop back up. Yeah. Yeah. It's the nature of the business. I will say, I didn't think about it until you mentioned it, but you do seem to have a proclivity for climbing to the top of the tallest buildings, right? Is that, I I think you went to the top of the Burj Khalifa, right? I did. Yeah. You know, you've been, you've been in these amazing spots. I think they're great photographs, but what does it give you to, to put yourself in those positions? Um, Because it's not a great spot to make photographs, right? (laughs) <laughs> well, your, your view is, is unlimited and limited at the same time. You know, you can't move around very much, but yeah, I mean, the world is much photographed. So, you know, if you can get to these very isolated, unusual places and make a few pictures, then that's a photograph that might stand uh, a test of time for a while, you know, and, and that nobody else will easily get anyway, you know, and there is kind of just a fun thing like, you look, I look at the Empire State Building when I'm down in New York City every once in a while. I look up and say, yeah, that blinking red light. You know, it's got my initials in it. It's fun. It. <laughs> yeah, we'll say your photos of the bridge in the book. I have the PDF version. The hardback's not out yet. I can't wait to see it. But the uh, I actually wrote in my PDF, this, is, this shot rocks, of the bridge where you found the angle of the workers on each side. It's a very symmetrical vertical shot where the beam is in the middle. Oh yeah. I just think that's a brilliant composition. And the fact that you took that while atop a bridge, you know, untethered <laughs> is a testament untethered. to your, uh, your tenacity, but also creativity under pressure. It's, you know, uh, it's quite a shot for a young, uh, scrappy photographer. 
It's back cool. in the day when you could do those things. Uh, no safe, yeah. no safety belt. Like, yeah, go ahead up. You know, it's crazy. Uh, looking back on it, it's crazy. You know, but uh, <laughs> uh, fun to do. Definitely fun to do. Yeah, none of us are getting younger, and photography is hard work. Doing it well is hard. As someone who is finding it harder and harder to make a living, even though you have 40 years of, of reputation to lean on. When you get done and you decide that you and Annie are just going to hang out in Italy for the rest of your rest of your life <laughs> and drink wine and, and watch the sunset, what photo that you've made so far is the one that you're going you're gonna to want people to, to remember you by? Mm. Probably, you know, the photographs that I, I remember most are pictures that a lot of people probably haven't seen. I mean, pictures I've made personally, you know, uh, Annie and I, adventures we've had together, you know, uh, my kids, you know, those are those you keep close. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I got into the business to uh, tell stories, you know, be curious, be out in the world, all those things. And also to gather uh, over time, conduct myself in the in a manner that uh, gathered the respect of my peers, and that would be something that I would be happy to be remembered by. That you know, he was uh, he was he was good behind the camera. He was also a good person behind the camera. That would be a worthwhile thing, I think. And everybody can awesome. say that, right? <laughs> no, I won't go there, but you know, there's. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I think it's our responsibility, you know, to 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 be the good shepherd. You know, when you're out there as a, as a photographer of not only your subjects, but the pictures that result. Well, I think that's why a lot of photographers adore you is you are kind of the photographer's photographer and you're very um, relatable and personable and humble. And but also you, you inspire. I I don't know how many times I've looked at your photos. I don't know how you did that. That's just incredible. So, Joe, I want to thank you for coming to Photocombobulate and spending some time with us. I know you're busy and we're really excited about your new book, The Real Deal, Field Notes from the Life of a Working Photographer. And that's from Rocky Nook. Where would you suggest people find that book now that the hardback's just finally getting off the boat and is available? It is available if you order direct from Rocky Nook. Uh, okay. That's the fastest way to get the hardcover copy rocky nook hit their website that's the way to go excellent yeah we prefer to shop directly with rocky nook anyway right jeff absolutely <laughs> you can also check out jeff's books on rocky nook while you're there okay yeah but we're not here to we're sell not those. here to sell <laughs> gotta be tenacious exactly right Thank you so much, Joe. Joe McNally, legend. Thank you for joining us. Uh, everybody, if you want to see some of Joe's work, we will have links on the show notes at photocombobulate.com. And of course, you can always go to your website and your blog, which is awesome. What's the address for that? JoeMcNally.com and JoeMcNally.com backslash blog. You also have a workshop coming up with a few spots left in Northern California, and Jeff and I would love to be there. But <laughs> if you want to spend some time with Joe McNally, there's your chance. Coming up, there's a great workshop in Napa. It's wonderful. Uh, wine and Joe McNally, I can't think of a better pairing. It'd be a fun, fun time out there for sure. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jeff. Thank you, guys, both of you. Wonderful questions, and I appreciate the opportunity to just hang out with a couple of good photographers. Awesome. Thank you, Joe. Wow. All right. Thank you.